Chapter Four of the Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Chapter Four. The P Company. The P Company is a big palace, dining and sleeping car company, that most American people know a great deal about. I had long desired to have a run on one of the magnificent sleepers that operated out of Chicago to every part of North America, that I might have an opportunity to see the country and make money at the same time and from Monday to Friday I had nothing to do but report at one of the three P offices in my effort to get such a position. One office, where I was particularly attentive, operated cars on four roads, so I called on this office about twice a week, but a long, slim chief clerk whose chair guarded the entrance to the superintendent's office, would drawl out lazily, We don't need any men today. I had been to the office a number of times before I left Eton, and had heard his drawl so often that I grew nervous whenever he looked at me. That district employed over a thousand porters, and there was no doubt that they hired them every day. One day I was telling my troubles to a friendly porter, whom I later learned to be George Cole, former husband of the present wife of Bert Williams, the comedian. He advised me to see Mr. Miltsow, the superintendent. "'But I can never see him,' I said despairingly, "'for that long imbecile of a clerk. "'Jump him some day when he is on the way from luncheon. "'Talk fast. "'Tell him how you have been trying all summer to get on. "'The old man,' he said, referring to the superintendent, "'likes big, stout youngsters like you, so try it.' "'The next day I watched him from the street.' and when he started to descend the long stairway to his office, I gathered my courage and stepped to his side. I told him how I had fairly haunted his office, only to be turned away regularly by the same words, that I would like a position if he would at any time need any men. He went into his office, leaving me standing at the railing, where I held my grounds in defiance, of the chief clerk's insolent stare. After a few minutes, he looked up and called out, Come in here, you. As I stood before him, he looked me over searchingly and inquired as to whether I had any references. No, sir, I answered quickly, but I can get them. I was beside myself with nervous excitement and watched him eagerly for fear he might turn me away at the physiological moment and that I would fail to get what I had wanted so long. Well, he said in a decisive tone, get good references, showing what you have been doing for the last five years, bring them around and I'll talk to you. 
Thank you, sir, I blurted out, and with hopes soaring, I hurried out and down the steps. Going to my room, I wrote for references to people in M, who had known me all my life. Of course, they sent me the best of letters, which I took immediately to Mr. Miltsow's office. After looking them over carelessly, he handed them over to his secretary, asking me whether I was able to buy a uniform. When I answered in the affirmative, he gave me a letter to the company's tailor and one to the instructor, who the next day gave me my first lessons in a car called the school in a nearby railroad yard placed there for that purpose. I learned all that was required in a day, although he had some pupils who had been with him five days before I started and who graduated with me. I now thought I was a full-fledged porter and was given an order for equipment, combs, brushes, etc., a letter from the instructor to the man that signed out the runs, a very apt-appearing young man with a gift for remembering names and faces, who instructed me to report on the morrow. The thought of my first trip the next day, perhaps to some distant city I'd never seen, caused me to lie awake the greater part of the night. When I went into the porter's room the next day, or down in the hole, as the basement was called, and looked into the place, I found it crowded with men, and mostly old men at that, and I felt sure it would be a long time before I was sent out. However, I soon learned that the most of them were emergency men, or emerges, men who had been discharged and who appeared regularly in hopes of getting a car that could not be supplied with a regular man. There was one by the name of Knight, a pitiable and forlorn character in whose breast hope sprang eternal, who came to the hole every day, and in an entire year he had made one lone trip. He lived by mooching a dime, quarter, or fifty cents from first one porter, then another, and by helping some porters make down beds in cars that went out on midnight trains. It was said that he had been discharged on account of too strict adherence to duty. Every member of a train crew, whether porter, brakeman, or conductor, must carry a book of rules, more as a matter of form than to show to passengers as Knight had done. A trainman should, and does, depend more on his judgment than on any set of rules and permits the rule to be stretched now and then to fit circumstances. Knight, however, corded his rule-book, and when a passenger requested some service that the rules prohibited, such, for instance, as an extra pillow to a berth, and if the passenger insisted or showed dissatisfaction, Knight would get his book of rules, turned to the chapter which dwelt on the subject, and read it aloud to the already disgruntled passenger, thereby making more or less of a nuisance to the traveling public. But I am digressing. Fred, the sign-out clerk, came along, and the many voices indulging in loud and raucous conversation so characteristic of porters off-duty 
gave way to respectful silence. He looked favorably on the regular men, but seemed to pass up the emerges as he entered. The poor fellows didn't expect to be sent out, but it seemed to fascinate them to hear the clerk assign the regular men their cars to some distant cities in his cheerful language, such as, Hello, Brooks, where did you come from? From San Antonio? Well, take the car Litchfield to Oakland. Leaves on number three at eleven o'clock tonight over the B and R.N. Have the car all ready, eight lowers made down. And from one to the other he would go, signing one to go east and another west. Respectfully silent and attentive the men's eyes would follow him as he moved on, each and every man eager to know where he would be sent. Finally he got to me. He had an excellent memory and seemed to know all men by name. Well, Devereux, he said, do you think that you can run a car? Yes, sir, I answered quickly. He fumbled his pencil thoughtfully while I waited nervously, then went on. And you feel quite capable of running a car, do you? Yes, sir, I replied with emphasis. I learned thoroughly yesterday. Well, he spoke as one who has weighed the matter and is not quite certain but willing to risk, and taking his pad and pencil, he wrote, speaking at the same time, You go out to the Fort Wayne Yards and get on the car El Teda. Goes extra to Washington, D.C. at three o'clock. Put away the linen, put out combs, brushes, and have the car in order when the train backs down. Yes, sir, and I hurried out of the room, up the steps, and onto the street where I could give vent to my elation. To Washington, first of all places, oh, glory, and I fairly flew out to 16th Street, where the P.F. and W. passenger yards were located. Here, not less than 700 passenger and P. cars are cleaned, and put in readiness for each trip daily and standing among them I found the Alteda. Oh, wonderful name. She was a brand new observation car, just out of the shops. I dared not believe my eyes, and felt that there must be some mistake. Surely the company didn't expect to send me out with such a fine car on my first trip. But I should have known better, for among the many thousands of P. cars with their picturesque names, there was not another Alteda. I looked around the yards and finally inquired of a cleaner as to where the Alteda was. Right there, he said, pointing to the car I had been looking at, and I boarded her nervously, found the linen and lockers, but was at a loss to know how and where to start getting the car in order. I was more than confused, and what I had learned so quickly the day before had vanished like smoke. I was afraid, too, that if I didn't have the car in order, I'd be taken off when the train backed down and become an emergy myself. This shocked me so it brought me to my senses, and I got busy putting the linen somewhere, and when the train stopped in the shed the car, as well as myself, was fairly presentable and ready to receive. 
Then came the rush of passengers, with all their attending requests for attention. Ah, poida, put my grip in thoiteen. And, ah, poida, will you raise my window and put in a deflector? Holy smithereens, I rushed back and forth like a lost calf, trying to recall what a deflector was, and I couldn't distinguish thoiteen from three. Then, ah, poida, will you tell me when we get to Valparaiso? called the little blonde lady. You see, I have a son who is attending the university there. Now, poida, don't forget, please, she asked winsomely. Oh, no, ma'am, I assured her confidently that I never forgot anything. My confusion became so intense. Had I gotten off the car, I'd probably not have known which way to get on again. The clerk seemed to sense my embarrassment and helped me seat the passengers in their proper places as well as to answer the numerous questions directed at me. The G.A.R. encampment was on in Washington, and the rush was greater than usual on that account. By the time the train reached Valparaiso, I had gotten somewhat accustomed to the situation and recalled my promise to the little blonde lady and filled it. She had been asleep, and it was raining to beat the band. With a sigh, she looked out of the window and then turned on her side and fell asleep again. At Pittsburgh I was chagrined to be turned back and sent over the P.H.&.D. to Chicago. At Columbus, Ohio, we took on a colored preacher who had a ticket for an upper berth over a southerner who had the lower. The southern gentleman, in that holier-than-thou attitude, made a vigorous kick to the conductor to have the colored sky pilot, as he termed him, removed. I heard the conductor tell him gently but firmly that he couldn't do it. Then, after a few characteristic haughty remarks, the southerner went forward to the chair car and sat up all night. When I got the shoes shined and lavatory ready for the morning rush, I slipped into the southerner's berth and had a good snooze, however longer than it should have been, for the conductor found me the next morning as the train was pulling into Chicago. He threatened to report me, but when I told him that it was my first trip out, that I hadn't had any sleep the night before and none the night before that on account of my restlessness in anticipation of the trip, he relented and helped me to make up the beds. I barely got to my room before I was called to go out again, this time going through to Washington. The P.F. and W. tracks pass right through Washington's Black Belt, and it might be interesting to the reader to know that Washington has more colored people than any other American city. I had never seen so many colored people. In fact, the entire population seemed to be Negroes. There was an old lady from South Dakota on my car who seemed surprised at the many colored people, and after looking quite intently for some time, she touched me on the sleeve, whispering, Porter, aren't there anything but colored people here? I replied that it seemed so. At the station, a near mob of colored boys huddled before the steps, and I thought they would fairly take the passengers off their feet 
by the way they crowded around them. However, they were harmless and only wanted to earn a dime by carrying grips. Two of them got a jujitsu grip on that of the old lady from South Dakota, and to say that she became frightened would be putting it mildly. Just then, a policeman came along, and the boys scattered like flies, and the old lady seemed much relieved. Having since taken up my abode in that state myself, and knowing that there were but few negroes inhabiting it, I have often wondered how she must have felt on that memorable trip of hers, as well as mine. After working some four months on various and irregular runs that took me to all the important cities of the United States east of the Mississippi River, I was put on a regular run to Portland, Oregon. This was along in February, and about the same time that I banked my first one hundred dollars. If my former bank account had stirred my ambition and become an incentive to economy and a life of modest habits, the larger one put everything foolish and impractical entirely out of my mind, and economy, modesty, and frugality became fixed habits of my life. At a point in Wyoming on my run to Portland, my car left the main line and went over another through Idaho and Oregon. From there, no birth tickets were sold by the station agents, and the conductors collected the cash fares, and had for many years mixed the company's money with their own. I soon found myself in the mire along with the conductors. Getting in was easy, and tips were good for a hundred dollars a month and sometimes more. Good conductors— a name applied to color-blind cons, were worth seventy-five, and with the twenty-five-dollar salary from the company, I averaged two hundred dollars a month for eighteen months. There is something fascinating about railroading, and few men really tire of it. In fact, most men, like myself, rather enjoy it. I never tired of hearing the tea-clack of the trucks and the general roar of the train as it thundered over streams and crossings throughout the days and nights across the continent to the Pacific coast. The scenery never grew old, as it was quite varied between Chicago and North Platte. During the summer, it is one large garden farm, dotted with numerous cities, thriving hamlets and towns, fine country homes so characteristic of the great Middle West, and is always pleasing to the eye. Between North Platte and Julesburg, Colorado, is the heart of the semi-arid region, where the yearly rainfall is insufficient to mature crops, but where the short buffalo grass feeds the ranchers' herds winter and summer. As the car continues westward, climbing higher and higher, as it approaches the Rockies, the air becomes quite rare. At Cheyenne, the air is so light it blows a gale almost steadily, and the eye can discern objects for miles away, while the ear cannot hear sounds over twenty rods. I shall not soon forget how I was wont to gaze at the herds of cattle ten to thirty miles away, grazing peacefully on the great Laramie Plains to the south, 
while beyond that lay the great American Rockies, their ragged peaks towering above in great sepulchral forms, filling me alternately with a feeling of romance or adventure, depending somewhat on whether it was a story of the roundup or some other article typical of the West I was reading. Nearing the Continental Divide, the car pulls into Rawlins, which is about the highest, driest, and most uninviting place on the line. From here, the stage lines radiate for a hundred miles to the north and south. Near here is Medicine Bow, where Owen Wister lays the beginning scenes of the Virginian, and beyond lies Rock Springs, the home of the famous coal that bears its name and which commands the highest price of any bituminous coal. The coal lies in wide veins, the shafts run horizontally, and there are no deep shafts as there are in the coal fields of Illinois and other central states. From here the train descends a gentle slope to Green River, Wyoming, a division point in the U.P. South on the D and R.G. is Green River, Utah. Arriving at Granger, one feels as though he had arrived at the jumping-off place of creation. Like most all desert stations, it contains nothing of interest, and time becomes a bore. Here the traffic is divided, and the O.S.L. takes the Portland and Butte section into Idaho, where the scenery suddenly begins to get brighter. Indeed, the country seems to take on a beautiful and cheerful appearance. Civilization and beautiful farms take the place of the wilderness, sagebrush, and skulking coyotes, thanks to the irrigation ditch. After crossing the picturesque American Falls of Snake River, the train soon arrives at Minidoka. This is the seat of the great Minidoka project, in which the United States government has taken such an active interest and constructed a canal over 70 miles in length. This has converted about a quarter of a million acres of Idaho's volcanic ash soil into productive lands that bloom as the rose. It was the beautiful valley of the Snake River, with its indescribable scenery and its many beautiful little cities, that attracted my attention and looked as though it had a promising future. I had contemplated investing in some of its lands and locating, if I should happen to be compelled by stress of circumstances to change my occupation. This came to pass shortly thereafter. The end came after a trip between Granger and Portland, in company with a shrewd Irish conductor by the name of Wright, who not only knocked down the company's money, but drank a good deal more whiskey than was good for him. On this last trip, when Wright took charge of the car at Granger, he began telling about his newly acquired dear little wifey, also confiding to me that he had quit drinking and was going to quit knocking down after that trip. Oh, yes, Wright was always going to dispense with all things dishonest and dishonorable at some future date. Another bad thing about Wright was that he would steal. 
not only from the company, but from the porter as well, by virtue of the rule that required the porter to take a duplicate receipt from the conductor for each and every passenger riding on his car, whether the passenger has a ticket or pays cash fare. These receipts are forwarded to the auditor of the company at the end of each run. Wright's method of stealing from the porter was not to turn over any duplicates or receipts until arriving at the terminus, and he would choose a time when the porter was very busy brushing the passenger's clothes and getting the tips, and would then have no time to count up or tell just how many people had ridden. I had received information from others concerning him and was cautioned to watch. So on our first trip, I quietly checked up all the passengers as they got on and where they got off, as well as the berth or seat they occupied. Arriving at Granger going east, he gave me the wink, and taking me into the smoking room, he proceeded to give me the duplicates and divide the spoils. He gave me six dollars, saying he had cut such and such a passenger's fare, and that was my part. I summed up, and the amount knocked down was $31. I showed him my figures, and at the same time told him to hand over nine-fifty more. How he did rage and swear about the responsibilities being all on him, that he did all the collecting and the dirty work in connection therewith that the company didn't fire the porter. He said before he would concede to my demands, he would turn all the money into the company and report me for insolence. I sat calmly through it all, and when he had exhausted his vituperations, I calmly said, Nine-fifty, please. I had no fear of his doing any of the things threatened, for I had dealt with grafting conductors long enough to know that when they determined on keeping a fare, they weren't likely to turn in their portion to spite the porter, and Wright was no exception. But getting back to the last trip, an old lady had given me a quart of old crow whiskey, bottled in bond. There had been perhaps a half pint taken out. I thanked her profusely and put it in the locker, and since Wright found that he could not keep any of my share of the knocked-down fares, he was running straight, that is, with me, and we were quite friendly, so I told him of the gift and where to find it if he wanted a smile. In one end of the P, where the drawing-room cuts off the main portion of the car, and at the beginning of the curved aisle and opposite to the drawing-room is the locker. When its door is open, it completely closes the aisle, thus hiding a person from view behind it. Before long, I saw Wright open the door, and a little later could hear him ease the bottle down after taking a drink. When we got to Portland, Wright was feeling about right, and the bottle was empty. As he divided the money with me, he cried, Let her run on three wheels. It was the last time he divided any of the company's money with a porter. When he stepped into the office at the end of that trip, he was told that they had a message from Ager, the assistant general superintendent, concerning him. Every employee knew that a message from this individual meant, Off goes the bean. 
I never saw right afterwards, for they got me too that trip. The little Irish conductor, who was considered the shrewdest of the shrewd, had run a long time and knocked down a great amount of the company's money, but the system of spotting eventually got him, as it does the best of them. I now had $2,340 in the bank. The odd 40 I drew out and left the remainder on deposit, packed my trunk and bid farewell to Armour Avenue and Chicago's black belt with its beer cans, drunken men and women, and turned my face westward with the spirit of Horace Greeley before and his words, Go west, young man, and grow up with the country ringing in my ears. So westward I journeyed to the land of raw material, which my dreams had pictured to me as the land of real beginning, and where I was soon to learn more than a mere observer ever could by living in the realm of a great city. End of chapter 4